2: hi i'm anna and i'm caroline and
3: this is seriously the pop culture podcast from the new statesman
4: Hello.
2: Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. And it is a very special episode.
3: Yeah, it's our hundredth episode of Seriously, which, oh my god, I feel ancient,
2: my beard is scraping on the floor, my knees hurt, ugh, we're just so old. And also, as someone reminded us on Twitter yesterday, yesterday was in fact the second birthday of Seriously as well. Oh my god, two years, a hundred episodes, we're just on it. I'm really there's only 52 Im- weeks in a year. We've done really well there. I'm really impressed by that. I felt like we'd skipped loads of weeks because of being ill and stuff, but actually not so many. Not many at all. Uh so there's been some excitement about this special episode, I'd say, because we did trail it
3: last week and it is a seriously special. We love to do a special,
2: don't we? It is. So over the course of 100 episodes, I would say probably the most requested thing we've ever had is please will you do another Harry Potter special?
3: It was the first thing we ever did, and I just feel like it's really full circle to do another Harry Potter special for our 100th episode.
2: Yep, so that is what you're getting. You asked for it. (laughs) You
3: better bloody enjoy it now.
2: (laughs) Over the last few days, we have pulled lots of our colleagues down to the Chamber of Podcasts Mm -hmm. to record on topics such as family in the series, creatures, romance, domesticity and social hierarchies so many different ideas we also have a very special dramatic fan fiction reading (laughs) yes (laughs)
3: from stephen bush himself so this week on the new statesman website which as seriously listeners will know is mine and caroline's other job we've been running a very special harry potter week to celebrate the fact that it's 20 years since the first harry potter book came out And almost everyone that you'll hear on the podcast has written a fantastic piece as part of that. So go to newstatesman.com slash Harry Potter week and you can see all of the amazing content we've done for that. Then come back, listen to this podcast, which is equally as delightful. And this closes off that special Harry Potter week.
2: It does. I feel like all the anniversaries have really aligned.
3: Yeah, it's just so great. And I love nothing more than chatting about Harry Potter with my friends. And I managed to make that my full time job this week. So it's been great. So yeah, people you'll hear on the podcast, some of them will be familiar voices to you. We've got Stephen Bush, Amelia Tate, Anusha Shakilian, India Bork, Pauline Bock, Pinyas Aracoski, John Ellidge, Lizzie Palmer, and of course, me and Caroline. And all of us work on the New Statesman web desk together.
2: What fun times. What a jolly workspace it is, eh? Yeah, exactly. We're very lucky to have so many serious Harry Potter fans as our colleagues. Mm-hmm. We'd love to know all of your thoughts about the topics we've discussed. So we're going to do the slightly cheesy thing of having a hashtag for this 100th episode, which mm-hmm. is going to be hashtag Seriously Potter. Yeah, if you've been to any of our Harry Potter quizzes, that is the, the, the hashtag we use
3: for those too. So please, hashtag Seriously Potter, your thoughts on this. So without further ado, please enjoy the 2nd <laughs> with such nuts, the second Seriously Harry Potter special. So I'm joined by John and Lizzie, two New Statesman colleagues, to chat about the wizarding world of media, newspapers, magazines, that kind of thing. So I think the first example of wizarding media that everyone thinks of is, of course, the Daily Prophet, which seems to be the only wizarding newspaper, which is quite troubling and problematic in many ways. It seems that every household, every British wizarding household subscribes to the Daily Prophet. You get it via owl. You put a knut in the owl's pocket. I guess it's a canut an issue. Sure. I feel like they could have had a subscription package, but whatever. And most of the teachers and a few Hogwarts students seem to get it.
5: I think it's probably quite good for the Daily Profit that it's not suffering from competition because it's, <laughs> going, sure to, it's going to it's going to make it easier for it to survive in, in an increasingly competitive media environment. I feel. Yeah. But I mean, it's a small, it's a relatively small community, the British wizardry, right? It's like I think last time we did one of these, we tried to calculate how many people there were. It's probably not a million wizards, right? So there's probably you probably don't need like a dozen news.
3: That's true, but then the effect of that obviously is that the wizard's seem to only be getting any of their information about their own community from one source Yeah which is also
6: very aligned with the Ministry of Magic <laughs> to Yeah, exactly. a slightly worrying degree.
3: There's no like official connection between the government and the Daily Prophet is there but it seems like it's just a known fact that the yeah. things are editorially linked in some way.
5: But it's fair, it's fair and balanced I think. I think it was the only <laughs> it was the only <laughs> publication that had the nerve to tell the truth about the boy who lied. <laughs> Um, and you know, talk about what what is Harry Potter's real motivation here?
3: Yeah, uh, it is funny because it is a it's a mainstream newspaper, right? But for me, it has the tone of like the Quibbler of this like kind of low key conspiracy theory paper. Because all of the headlines are things like Dumbledore daft or dangerous. They're like this really kind of weird conspiracy esque stories.
6: Well, I think in the first three books it's not actually that controversial. It's just kind of introduced as this is how Harry learns about what's going on in the wizarding world. Right. But then kind of after I think after the fourth one, when no one believes Harry that Voldemort's returned, yeah. it just goes a bit mental and starts printing all these like crazy lines about Harry and then it gets a bit hysterical. Yeah. But that's before so that true. it's quite normal. <laughs> as the books are aimed
3: at older audiences were being asked to like question the authority more in all ways in the books right like teachers become more problematic and scary although actually I guess Quirrell from the beginning was pretty scary. I was gonna say there's always (laughs) there are always
5: questions about some of the the disciplinary procedures at Hogwarts. I remember the moment
3: where Fudge starts to look like a complete idiot when he refuses to accept that That Voldemort is coming back and that's when you start to be like oh god like Harry actually seems to know more than like the government or the media.
5: Something I really like about the fifth book is the way the world suddenly expands Mm. and in some ways that's that's a bit frustrating because you're kind of like so the most interesting bits for me are always the bits where they're talking about what's going on in the wider world and then you go back to a bloody you know potions lesson. Or something,
3: which is not- <laughs> See I was like get back to fucking potions yeah. <laughs> but yeah it definitely does in a big way and I think I one of the things I love about the Daily Prophet is the way it does like JK Rowling uses it as a way to like Give you a little glimpse of what goes on like outside of school and then you like go straight back to school when like Hermione's finished reading out a news story at the breakfast table. But it gives you this idea of like this really crazy, eccentric world, right? Some of the headlines are really, really funny to me. Faulty Wands recalled. Muggles are not as stupid as we think, says Ministry Report. <laughs> and Magpie Chaser, quote, only tried football for a laugh.
6: Yeah, I would like to read kind of a spin-off book about then workings of the Daily Prophet newsroom and just yeah, what goes definitely. on there because also it doesn't seem to function like a Muggle print newspaper because, I mean in our world do we have just like edition times Mm -hmm. but if they have some breaking news they can just like rush out another edition with owls and it's like do they have a time turner in the office (laughs) probably (laughs) i can imagine they would because as we know it has close government
3: ties and the government has all the time turners but yeah i like the way they can sometimes have two front pages we see in the movie like this is one that you mentioned in your piece that you wrote about fake news and, and harry potter basically introducing us to the concept of fake news where it says like all is well with a picture of fudge and then it like switches to the boy who lied with like a picture of harry
6: (laughs) when a headline says all is well massive caps you probably like i'm saying that all is not very much not well
3: (laughs) doesn't that
5: raise questions about the epilogue well, cause surely Ooh, the,
6: well,
5: the last lines John. of the book are surely all as well, right?
3: Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, <of course. laughs> is J.K. Rowling, her own daily profit editor.
5: Can, can we talk about the lack of internet in the wizarding world? I just feel like it would kind of mess up a lot of the plot, right, if there was an internet that, that they can log on to.
3: Yeah, it would. But then I wonder, what is the equivalent of, like, wizard's social media? Is it just writing things on the wall in blood like they do in the Chamber of Secrets?
5: (laughs) You probably, I mean, like, yeah, they probably, there's probably some sort of magical technology that means you can just kind of write, like, there probably is like a literal book that acts like Twitter and you can just write something in it and everyone else who's got one can read it. It's probably the sort of...
3: I guess a howler is like a naming and shaming on social media. It's basically a quote, Artie, imagine thinking this, but it's just your mum shouting (laughs) at you at the dinner table.
5: I, I realised earlier after reading Lizzie's article that uh, Harry Potter is very much the milkshake duck meme, in
7: fact. <laughs> yeah. And
5: that, you know, every, everybody loves the boy who defies Voldemort, but then they you know, they turn it, yeah. against him. Yeah. And I, I, I tweeted this and someone unfollowed me, and I think that was probably a reasonable reaction <laughs> under the circumstances. So...
3: Yeah. You think maybe the reason that the books were set in the late 90s is perhaps because it, the internet would have complicated things so much.
5: I wonder if it's a factor, yeah, because, I mean the first book begins in 91 right which is when she conceives it mm. but wasn't published till 97 by mm. which time you know the internet is is a thing in a mm-hmm. way it's not in the very early 90s and in the same way like you know the plot of of Romeo and Juliet would be ruined if they had mobile phones it just wouldn't work yeah if they could just ring each other up and say for god's sake don't kill yourself <laughs> so the like I kind of feel like particularly with those of the more claustrophobic later books, you kind of need the closing of the environment and not being able to talk to the outside world, except in very specific ways. Yeah. Is is the Quibbler the equivalent of the Canary?
6: Oh, what a question. I did consider that when I was reading about the Quibbler, and I don't know, I think it's like a bit more mountain than the Canary. It's not as like rooted in
5: this world i mean the canary's kind of mad yeah but 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 it did it, it you know it turns out that they were onto something with the whole jeremy corbyn thing so you know maybe <laughs> maybe there's a parallel there.
3: that is funny because we do get this shift don't we with the quibbler where it's like basically a joke in maybe book five or four yeah. and it's all like i remember i love the article where they're like serious black as he's painted and the conspiracy theory is that Sirius Black is actually popular wizarding singer Stubby Boardman in disguise <laughs> <laughs> and they've got an obsession with crumple horn snork axe, which... yeah
7: what the
6: Luna's going to look for them in the woods or something yeah in and, Sweden yeah
3: and what are those uh, raxberts <laughs> and all these kind of like magical creatures that Hermione is convinced don't exist at all and then it becomes basically like the voice of reason when Dumbledore yeah. starts to rise so I wonder is J.K. Rowling trying to make a comment there?
5: Maybe it's a comment on the need for a competitive media environment. <laughs> yes, I think it really voice. is,
6: and the need for Ofcom and press regulation. Because, yeah, J.K. Rowling was quite heavily involved in campaigning for that press re- regulation. So she was. That's so true.
5: You know, I once wrote a piece demanding that J.K. Rowling buy a, a tabloid newspaper.
3: Did you? Did she do it, John?
5: not so far as i know
4: did she read the piece
5: i believe that she has read it i got like one of her press agents once tweeted it oh "Oh, this would be amazing so i actually i I find it unlikely she's not at least aware of the piece but certain of our colleagues who shall remain nameless were very very keen on the idea for a while that maybe jk rowling could swoop in and and buy the new statesman yeah i
3: would like that a lot if you're listening jk sure you are (laughs) please buy us Yeah, I also wanted to shout out to Witch Weekly, which is possibly my favourite wizarding publication, which I guess is the, like, woman's mag. I know that they have it in the, like, waiting rooms at uh, the hospitals, the wizarding hospitals. But again, seems to just print rubbish. I remember it was very supportive of Professor Lockhart, who constantly won Witch Weekly's most charming smile award, and wasn't Witch Weekly the place where Rita Skeeter published her article saying that Hermione and Harry were in love?
6: I think Harry's it was. Yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like absolutely no media in in the Wizarding World is is guiltless. Even the Quibbler. When it can you can anyone else think of any that are, are blameless? I oh, know they do have that radio station Potter Watch. Oh yeah, which
6: but actually it's just kind of like a little underground club for kind of. <laughs> harry his supporters really
3: yeah it's the i guess it's dumbledore's army's yeah. communication rather than yeah a mainstream media it's thing. not really
6: like providing much for public service but you're right of-
3: that it is like really good and i think there's a general tendency in the harry potter books where at the end of the series i sort of expected the government to be brought down and like all the systems that had been allowed to be corrupted so intensely to be torn to the ground and instead you're like oh no someone good is in charge now so it's all fine and I think that's a similar thing where but because there's good people running it, it's like, fine.
5: You say that Potterwatch is very good, but there is a thing where they all, they give them all nicknames, but they're all really transparent nicknames. <laughs> that's true. So I think Remus Lupin is on there as Romulus, which is like, you can, <laughs> it's not hard to crack that code, guys.
6: That's so true. And
5: it's also his voice. So, you know, how secret is this, really? Oh. Can we be sure this wasn't, in fact, another arm of the the authoritarian wizarding state we can't
3: you're absolutely right I love the kind of sport pages because we find out (laughs) that Ginny becomes a sports editor yeah good for Ginny I know I love that smashing that glass ceiling journalist icon a Rory Gilmore of the of the wizarding world then I kind of wish that I could subscribe to like a fake daily Prophet every day just to get an update on the wizarding world instead of like reading Pottermore
5: I'm wondering if there's a wizarding equivalent of city metric where it's all like, hey, look at this cool new map of the flu now.
3: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm sure there is. Oh, John, that's such a lovely idea. I really hope there is.
5: Okay, internet, you know what to do.
2: I'm joined by Stephen and India to discuss the matter of social hierarchy and how the wizarding world treats creatures. So Stephen let's start off with this fact that the wizarding world is obsessed with categorizing everything humans into pure-bloods half-bloods muggle-borns squibs etc. There's
8: quite an interesting Marxist analysis I think to be had of the Harry Potter universe, which I assume, because they use magic, they don't seem to have had what I would describe as a full-blown industrial revolution. One assumes that they are largely cooking through magical means, they're being transported via magical means, and the interesting thing is you actually have quite a feudal society right? Not just because of the pure bloods, mud mudbloods divide, but also because you effectively have wizards and witches who can use magic freely at the top squibs who seem to mostly occupy a kind of vassal class, so, you know, assistants, the caretaker, etc, etc. Neville, who is believed and was believed by many fans for some time to be a squib, effectively treated as a kind of comic vassal. And then obviously the Muggles, who are kind of separate from the world and are treated as an underclass, even though... Bizarrely, even in uh, Britain in the 90s when it's set, and even in Britain today, there seems to be more social fluidity and social mobility in the muggle world than there is in... you know, e- Weirdly, even the Weasleys, a very old wizarding family, still seem to be caught in generational poverty.
2: Yeah, which is bizarre. Why are the Weasleys still poor when they can do magic? It makes no sense.
8: And also, at the start of the book, right, they have more dependent children than non-dependent children. But by the end of the book, they don't appear to have got materially richer despite the fact they have less less mouths to feed, and three of those children who to whom they are not estranged are all earning salaries and could presumably be sending remittances back to the...
2: <laughs> yeah, but a, a big preoccupation India of wizards, as well as classifying themselves, is classifying other beings, right? So you were just saying there's the Department for Magical Creatures.
9: Mm. And that seems to want to divide the magical world up, or the creature world up, into three categories. You've got beings, which are able to recognise magical laws and act on them. Beasts and spirits. But then it gets, it's, it's really odd. Why Why do you need house elves in a, in a creature's department, for starters? Then apparently mer people asked to be classified as beasts instead of beings. So there's clearly tensions within the creature <laughs> world over a, this.
8: The way that the department classifies you does basically depend on whether or not you are capable of law-breaking. Actually, in terms of law-breaking, that gets us to the other sort of interesting thing about the wizarding world and creatures, which is it's dependent on not one but two slave classes. House elves, as Hermione uh, rightly notes, are are slaves, right? They are an enslaved race. And Azkaban, which is defended by, as far as we can make out, a slave class of creatures mm-hmm. who have to work or else they'll starve, they are quite literally deprived of food by the wizards, and the food they are given is their reward for keeping the undesirables of the wizarding world locked up in, in Azkaban. The are dementors. Yeah. yeah.
9: They're not, apparently they're, they are not classified. They don't fit into any of them. Yeah, right,
8: they're so then, un- they're undocumented. The classic, <laughs> defra- the universe of Harry Potter is what happens when you don't have industrialisation, you don't have an organised working class, you don't have a fear among the ruling class and, and the need to bring forward some kind of ameliorative reforms. Right, there has been no social democratic moment in the Harry Potter world.
2: So, given that we have well documented Hermione's attempts to change this with the House Elf Liberation Front, or Spew, as it's also known. <laughs> But she doesn't really get anywhere, right? There's that amazing bit in Goblet of Fire, you know, where at the World Cup, Winky's found holding a wand and Barty Crouch Sr. dismisses her on the spot because she's failed in her duty and all this kind of thing. You know, it is very much one rule for wizards, one rule for everyone else. And they don't really have legal status. And it just seems to be, as embedded a kind of social norm that wizards are above
8: everyone. Well, although I had many issues with uh, A Cursed Child, uh, and I realise I haven't checked before we've gone on air how wide-ranging the canon is in this discussion, but my assumption is that However one might feel about it, a cursed child is fairly obviously canon. But I liked that she is in Ministry of Magic, and although much of her day-to-day duties as minister are not covered, I like to assume that a large part of her agenda is enfranchisement of the creatures that she's been sort of defending since the fourth book.
2: Mm. And we get some interesting stuff as well, don't we, about goblins later on in the series. You know, when Harry, Ron and Hermione are working with Griphook and Bill kind of warns them against trusting a goblin and explains that, you know, goblin society has a different idea of ownership what is it? It's to do with the sword, isn't it? Gryffindor's sword. And he's saying that the wizarding idea, indeed the human idea of object ownership, is that you pay a craftsman to make something and your money buys you that object in perpetuity. Whereas goblins see it more as you've rented it for your lifetime. And then when you die, that object reverts to the craftsman who made it. And this causes all kinds of conflicts because the goblins have become the bankers in wizarding society. Uh, Thing that has its own problematic elements, especially given how they were portrayed in the film. There have been people who've said that goblins are a kind of stand in for Jews or something, which, yeah, I'm not sure I about think that. In
8: the film, I think I can see the case. They, they do definitely appear to be drawn as an anti Semitic stereotype. The interesting thing, actually, in the books, both in the pre film books and the post film books, their rationale for why they've become bankers is, is very far away from the reason why Jewish Europeans were uh, in, so influential in the financial system in the medieval period, which, of course, was about usury. Er- you aren't allowed to lend at interest uh, according to the Bible, though there were lots of ways people got around that. Jews were, which is why you had uh, the such an important times. And again, you do have a different attitude towards ownership, but it's actually an entirely Widdishins one. In fact, the slightly weird thing about why about the goblins divide with wizards about who owns things is I do not understand how you could build a global financial infrastructure (laughs) if you believe that assets revert to the craftsman upon death. How do you how how is wealth accumulated in order to build a financial services sector of the kind that Gringotts clearly is, right? It is definitely too big to fail.
2: Like many things to do with Harry Potter, I would read volumes and volumes of like the financial regulations just Just to understand. I just want to understand. Speaking of things that are canon, but we look at them slightly sideways, I know, Indy, you wanted to talk a bit about animals. And just the idea in general of, you know, the bit where Harry gets his pet, where he, you know, Hagrid buys him an owl. And then in a subsequent book, Hermione gets crookshanks and they go into the pet shop and they see all the different pets on offer. And you think, I'm pretty sure humans, like muggles, in our real world, we'd not think it's acceptable to keep an owl in a cage looked after by a teenager. You know, they're, they're just not a species that you that's that's a good environment for them.
9: There was an article that said um, in China, there's now like more of a problem with owls being kept as pets, possibly influenced by Harry Potter.
2: I feel like it's hinted in the books because isn't one of the things that makes Harry's uncle Vernon really mad when he comes to pick him up at King's Cross at the end of the school year is that Harry has an owl in a cage and people keep staring at it. People stare in a station because you shouldn't keep an owl in a cage. It's not, it's not humane. Now I'm joined by Amelia Tate and Pauline Bock to talk about home life and domesticity in the Harry Potter series. We're gonna start by asking both of our guests what their favorite non-Hogwarts slash ministry slash place of work idea is. Amelia, what's your favorite thing?
10: Uh. Well, I was going to go straight in there with homework, which makes me sound wildly boring. (laughs) But I love the way that it's presented in the books, particularly in the beginning of book three, when Harry's doing his little essay on witch burning, and he kind of is chilling with Florian Fortescue, if that's how you say his name, and he's eating ice cream and he's doing his essay. I don't know, I just find that so... it's so unmagical, but it was kind of magical to me. And it's magical to Harry as well, isn't it?
2: Because he's actually got to do his homework I mean
10: like in book one I think he was denied a nice ice cream when Dudley got one so it's kind of like a nice redemption arc for Harry to have like a summer of free ice cream
4: yeah how about you Bonnie I actually agree I don't remember any homework he really liked but that I really liked reading about I do remember that every time he'd had some free time in Hogwarts that would be the most enjoyable things I would read about like Mm. whenever he would go to the library with Hermione but just to meet her there not to actually be researching it would just be really enjoyable to to read that and also the um, all the times they they chill out by the lake mm. and I think it's book six when he's dating Ginny and they go there and they just have these like small dates by the lake and they don't do anything because yeah, it's the end so of the, yeah, so it's, it's the summer yeah. and they are finally are enjoying time in Hogwarts without any darkness in it.
2: It's funny, isn't it, in a a book that's so known for its magical realm and all its fantastical elements that actually you can find the most pleasure in things like what they get served for dinner and how their living accommodation works and stuff. But I I have to admit that was always the bits I for foremost when a new book came out obviously I raced through it wouldn't be like oh what's gonna happen with Voldemort but also is Mrs Weasley gonna you know give us some new insight into how being a cook in the world of Harry Potter works yeah and
10: even like Christmas like Christmas it shouldn't technically be in the Harry Potter universe I feel <laughs> like who was Wizard Jesus uh but <laughs> without it it would be nothing you know like that is just the most comforting kind of domestic just it's just like being wrapped in a blanket, reading mm. that about woolly jumpers and homemade fudge, and-,
4: and it is the best as well. Like all the presents, the first present when he get when he gets the, um, yeah, the invisibility cloak, and you're like, that is amazing. I just yeah. want to know about all the presents, even the stupid ones from the Dursleys when he gets like I don't a nail. Yeah, <laughs> all of that, and you just want to know what all the other presents were, all the yeah small things. I suppose it works, doesn't it?
2: Because Harry, as a character, has had very little quote like normal family life that obviously everything wizarding is new to him but having people to send him presents and make nice food for him and try and help him have a nice time is also really new to him so we get to see it through his eyes where um you know i remember that first description of that first christmas ron's really embarrassed that his mom has sent harry a jumper yeah. and harry just thinks it's the best thing ever yeah which is yeah, and like doing. you
10: say, like it, it's the exact same with the food. Like you see Harry frying bacon for Dudley, and he doesn't get to eat it. But then he goes to Hogwarts, and the tables are literally groaning with food. And it's just like that is magical. It's not magical, but it is. I just, I don't know. I just love it. Like, the, like the non-magical food. It's not about chocolate frogs and Bertie Botts for me. It's about these roast potatoes and yes. slabs of meat just yes. lying on this table, ready to be eaten.
2: Yeah, and I suppose that's an interesting thing about Hogwarts, isn't it? That pupils are just there to learn. Uh, all their other possible privations are taken away. So like their meals are just provided for them. They don't have to do anything. And that's not because only house elves can make bacon. It's just because, you know, they're just there to learn and everything needs to be provided. But it's interesting when we get glimpses of them outside of Hogwarts. So like when they're staying at Grimald Place or when Harry's staying at the Burrow and It's always Mrs Weasley who does the cooking.
10: I can never figure it out though because she's doing it but she's also getting her wand to kind of like chop things and wash things and it's this weird thing where like... Domestic labour, again, like Wizard Jesus, it shouldn't exist. And because... where
4: did they th- get the food from? Because some of it they have to buy, some yeah, they yes. of they don't. Yeah, there's gods, elemental lore, transfiguration. But they never yes. really explain them. So you're like, did you get the salt from yeah, where's the wizard a box before, from like magic? It's never explained. You know? I would love
10: a wizard supermarket. Oh my god, that would be my favourite <laughs> thing. I would love to read about
2: that. Is it the beginning of Order of the Phoenix when Fred and George have come of age mm. and are allowed mm. to use magic? Yeah. And a knife, right? falls or something. yeah exactly yeah. like everyone would now that they're allowed to use it outside school they want to use it for everything so they're like apparating up and down the stairs and you know bringing all the dishes to the table with their wands instead of just with their hands and their mum gets really annoyed with them because she's like you don't have to do it for every little thing but I always had sympathy with them. I was like, well, if you could, you would. Yeah, you definitely yeah would.
10: Molly is quite like a haggard, rushing around character. And she is a stay-at-home mum, right? She mm. doesn't have a yeah, job. But, so but it's that's like, a why why problem as
4: well in itself. The fact that if you had magic, would you need to stay at home to do everything all the time? Yeah, exactly. Or could you just get magic to do it for you? And then you could still be a mum at home, but not being you know, just cooking all the time. Also,
10: for like half the year, they're at Hogwarts. What is she doing? <laughs> what are you doing, Molly?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a very good point. I feel like many of the minor characters, she kind of ceases to exist when you can't see her. Yeah, we, I know. actually,
10: maybe she kind
2: of did come into her own in
10: Grimmauld Place, like she was magically cleaning everything and like mm. dusting and scouring and just making everything nice.
4: Yeah, but she's still cleaning. Yeah, that's a very
2: interesting point though that you raise about Grimmauld Place, because that's a entirely magical house, right? It's mm. not like the burrow where you've got a large human family, whether they're wizards or not, you know, they still generate laundry and also a dad who's obsessed with collecting muggle stuff grimoire place is a pure blood citadel as it were and you know it's got like elf heads nailed to the walls and weird magical creatures hiding in the curtains and so there you get to see magical domesticity in its fullest form right because you know she's using magical cleaning products yeah. do- doxy spray and all that kind of thing again where do you get it from yeah. there must be a kind of I
4: don't know B and M in. I guess like maybe I? there's a
10: witch section of Witch Weekly where it's like this is the best. Yeah, and, it, <laughs> and it
4: feels like it's so difficult to just shop. Like I remember I'm reading the second one again, and they have to go to the bank to get money before they can do anything else. And when they travel to Diagonally, which I'm saying wrong because I'm French, so I would definitely not be able to use flu powder. <laughs> but they say that they need to get more flu powder. Mm. and where do they get them from like, yeah that would suck molly, t- molly tells arthur we need to get more but then you never know where to get it from
10: yeah like if you needed to travel somewhere and you'd run out it's kind of like i guess it's like petrol in a car yeah where but you've got also, to also ahead
4: and there's the, just the money thing do you yeah, need go to go to the bank you, you are literally a wizard we have do contactless
10: y- payment yeah. you should have just contactless payment find a way
2: <laughs> yeah there are like many things with harry potter Magic seems to make things harder, not easier.
10: But I think that fully is where the charm is. Do you know mm. what I mean? Again, we're going back to the unmagical and the idea of them going into this like bank and just having to walk into a vault and it's Unwriting it's like with a quite a lot. It's medieval, yeah. Mm. It's medieval and it's not magical. It's actually like holy shit. You should have figured out how to do this better, yeah. but. That's why it's charming and so comforting and
2: yeah. Yeah, i one of my favourite pieces of fan fiction has this as a whole subplot where Hermione as a muggle-born, she has this whole thing where she's like pitying pure bloods because she's like actually your lives are much harder than mine because you don't know how to use a mobile phone it's set many years after and she's like a grown-up with a job yeah. and stuff and she's like I really wish I could just text people but instead I have to use an owl yeah I mean that just that just never makes sense and that author really I felt worked that seam of the flip side of like yay, yeah, you can make things fly towards you with your wand but also you don't know how to take a train, which mm. is really hard for yeah. you. Yeah,
10: and also all the Hogwarts students have to go to London to get on a train to, to go, go back to out. Or well, if you live in Scotland, <laughs> what then, JK?
2: Can you just uh, go on a bus Yeah, can get there? Or is yeah. it oh, accessed by train only?
10: Apart from these things that we've just mentioned, which there are a lot, I do feel like she was good at like kind of making rules where you couldn't... Like, you know, anti-cheating quills, where you couldn't like try to cheat in your exams and stuff. It's quite nice to define these rules so that fundamentally... We got those bits that we enjoyed where they were just teenagers who were sat in their dorms just like, oh, I have to write 12 inches of parchment and I can't do
2: it and I'm tired.
10: <laughs> and it was just
2: so relatable. Yes, that's the thing, isn't it? No matter how much she stretched the boundaries within the specific things, it was still homework um, and it was still food and so on. So I wanted to just finish by asking you each what your
4: favourite magical meal was. I liked everything. I liked every single description of food because... Well, it was British food, so for me, it was new as well. I was like, what's porridge? What's treacle tart? Like, I have no idea what this is. There's no porridge in France? No, that's not a thing. I mean, we kind of know it is because it's British, but that's it. I, I've, I've had it once and I didn't like it. But <laughs> I, I've had fair. it after reading about it in Harry Potter. So to me, it was more of a Harry Potter thing than just a British thing, which is weird. Anyway, I've, yeah. So I just, I just liked all, this, all these descriptions of feasts and some, sometimes just like I don't know, roasted potatoes. Very, very simple things that just looked more magical because it came from the books. Treacle tart, Harry's fave. I really don't like it. I tried it <laughs> once because it was his fave, and I was like, "What's wrong with you, Harry? Like, carrot cake exists. Like, just pick one actual." Yeah, girl. they
10: never mention carrot cake in Hogwarts. They, they feel don't. Like it's like but you can Eve see Goth- it. You
4: can see it in the first movie. Oh, oh my god! Harry. And you know
10: what the movies really do? Like, there's a scene in the fifth movie where it's breakfast and there's a giant bowl of crisps on the table, and I'm like, <laughs> "Take me to Hogwarts."
2: for <laughs> <laughs> breakfast. Yeah. What about you, Amelia? What's your favorite? I don't know if it's magical, but you
10: know when Molly makes that giant snitch cake for Harry? Oh, yeah. There's yes. just something about the way it's described, and again, it's so motherly and domestic to just slave away this on this cake, this massive gold cake with wings. And yeah, I don't know if it actually does anything magical.
4: But I know that sounds amazing. It's yeah. definitely one of. The- one of those, all the pumpkin things as well, and like mm. just the the sweet trolleys. All yeah, the sweets. thirty
10: bots. I've always loved jelly jelly belly beans. And honey anyway. dukes.
4: I just want to go to honey Dukes. I couldn't tell you now, yeah, but, some but things are once very I'm there, weird, like a blood
10: pop. What? Do they
2: have a blood lollipop? Oh, for yeah. Vampires.
4: Oh, it's good to be inclusive, fat? but still. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: I'm joined by pals Amelia and Pinya and we're gonna talk about family because I feel like family is just so important to every character in the Harry Potter world. Wizards love family. Am I right? Very true. Yeah, it definitely feels like that. We see
10: a lot of like everyone's family and hear a lot of people's backgrounds, and she kind of paints this broad picture of different family lives from like massive sprawling families like the blacks to just like, yeah. you know, one parent households like love goods.
3: Yeah so true and I feel like from the beginning the one thing that Harry really wants as we learn in like book one is a family with the whole like mirror of Erised scene. That first book especially is so much about like Harry finding his sort of adoptive family whether that's Hagrid who first comes knocking on his door or whether that's like Molly Weasley just like scooping him into her arms immediately and just yeah. saying yeah
11: he's as good as family. Also loss of family seems like a big connecting thing between characters Mm. with Dumbledore and Harry and Hagrid and Harry and yeah um, and Luna and Harry finally bond when he realizes that her mum's died as well yeah that's
3: really really true I never thought about it that way so I feel like one of the big dividing lines between different kinds of families are like the Malfoy-esque like obsession with blood relations versus like the piggledy-piggledy mixed adoptive families that you get sort of surrounding Harry this like bubbles to the surface in the Molly Weasley jumpers uh, yeah, Because she, like, makes Harry a jumper, which are all, yeah, for all her like, children. You're one of us now. Yeah. She literally, like, <laughs> makes him one of her children. She, like, names him and, like, yeah. forces him Puts to wear, wear, <laughs> him, wear the mark of her motherhood. And I found this quote, which I just love so much. So I'm going to read it. Indulge me. No one, not even someone dreading taking polyjuice, po- polyjuice Potion later, could fail to enjoy Christmas dinner at Hogwarts. And then J.K. Rowling describes who's at Christmas dinner at Hogwarts Dumbledore led them in a few of his favourite carols, Hagrid booming more and more loudly with every goblet of eggnog he consumed. Percy, who hadn't noticed that Fred had bewitched his prefect badge so that it now read Pinhead, kept asking them all what they were sniggering at. Harry didn't even care that Draco Malfoy was making loud, snide remarks about his new jumper from the Slytherin table. And oh. I think it's so funny that Malfoy like doesn't get it and he doesn't get this whole adopted family thing and he thinks the jump is stupid. Yeah. Because his kind of family is so, so different. And yeah, like, he probably got a PlayStation that Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, And he, he, all he cares about, I guess, is the inheritance side of family and like being sorted into Slytherin like the rest of yeah. his family. But
10: it's really interesting because you do get this picture of like the malfoys being quite stern with their son or i don't know if i'm getting my fan fiction confused <laughs> <laughs> and lucius does really love draco but you do get this picture throughout that there's this kind of you know he's trying to live up to his father and that's what's so beautiful about the redemption in the end where the Malfoys are just like, oh, actually it's more important to be with each
3: other and yeah. run away
6: from Voldemort.
3: Exactly. Definitely. That moment with Narcissa Malfoy is so... Yeah, is he dead? Yeah. yeah. I love that bit. And you're both so right that like family often is how people redeem themselves, like Percy Weasley eventually choosing family over work. Right,
11: that's how he redeems himself. But there is also another side to it because it's very clear in like Tom Riddle's part that family was a bad thing also in the sense that uh, his mum just didn't grow up in a good family and Mm. that, that made all the difference to the life that she had and that he had.
3: Yeah, there's that kind of picture of domestic abuse and how it yeah. can like really turn someone And that bad, was meant to be the,
11: one of the
10: parallels with Harry, isn't it? Like he's got all these parallels with Voldemort and it was meant to kind of show... I,
11: I don't know what it was meant to kind of show that you can go your <laughs> own way, I don't know. But, but he um, had that same abusive household. and uh, But I guess he was the first one because it was similarly with Snape that he had a potentially abusive household. and yeah. he, he started going the wrong way and then redeemed himself through his chosen family who was Lily.
3: Yeah, and I feel like a lot of this comes back to sorting, right? Because the difference between Harry and maybe Snape and Voldemort is that Snape and Voldemort was sorted into Slytherin, mm. which kind of encouraged all those bad sides. And the house system in Harry Potter is a kind of family in itself, but it seems like kind of a toxic one, right? Yeah, definitely.
11: definitely. I've definitely thought a lot about how Draco would have turned out maybe a differently much earlier on if he had been sorted into a different half yeah and i think it's just astonishing when you look back at it how horrible that system (laughs) is in a way because it does sort you into just one kind of family where you you can't go beyond that at all yeah
10: completely and in book two the actual password for the slytherin dormitory is pure Pure blood blood. (laughs) like that is seriously (laughs) (laughs) these kids are so like involved with that idea and all slytherins are pure bloods right i don't think there's ever been a non- Pure blood, so they're so like it's so intrinsic within their identity yeah it's a wild thing to tell a child it's like being like
3: <laughs> you're a nazi son <laughs> and nothing you'd ever try to do will ever change, change that it. yeah, yeah it's part of this really kind of backwards idea of everyone in the family being the same mm. and like family traits being yeah. a thing what if one of the wheezy's was brunette you know like yeah. <laughs> i don't think ginger's the dominant gene is it you know <laughs> you could come up with a brunette child it's true but one of the things that seems so nice about the Weasley family is that you have all these different characters so like Mm. Fred and George and Percy are basically polar opposites of people right because you've got these like mischief makers on the one hand and then this like absolutely like strict rule follower on the other and I feel like that's why it's kind of like a good family in Mm. in the Harry Potter series because it's like allows for difference and allows people to be like individuals and that's the same for harry's kind of like hodgepodge of a adoptive family that we see like the order basically all of those people they're all very different and colorful putting
10: it like this like all together what we've just said it does kind of feel like her message is that your family doesn't define you because like you start off even dudley it's like you're lazy and you're greedy because your parents have spoiled you but even by the end he he's the one that'll shake harry's hand Mm. and like it's the same with everyone it's kind of and what we just said about houses your house doesn't define you in the end either them. No, that's true. But then not
3: not for Voldemort <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like everything every nothing defines you and, unless you're a Slytherin, in which case it like,
10: probably does. <laughs> unless you're a bastard.
3: Yeah. One thing that's interesting is the way that so many of the families kind of merge by the time that we see the epilogue. Because we've got like all these like tiny Weasley Potters slash Weasley Grangers, and it does feel a bit like in marrying Ginny, Harry's sort of marrying into the Weasley family officially. It's like he's now he couldn't he he was already like an adoptive son, and now he's like a son-in-law officially of Arthur and Molly.
11: Yeah, definitely, and it's yeah emphasized with Teddy Lubin, who's potentially marrying yeah properly into the family, <laughs> yeah. whereas he's already part of the family. It's a bit but weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's it all is. a bit incestuous
3: <laughs> and bizarre. Yeah. I mean, shout out to Neville. We all love Neville. Oh right? my god,
11: that's my favourite
7: scene
3: in <laughs> the hospital. I know. For Neville. And he's got family difficulties and stuff because of his his parents being tortured by Bellatrix Lestrange and they're like permanently in some Mungo's. He's brought up with his grandma. At the start, that's portrayed as like a really bad family setup for Neville. Like she seems so strict and overbearing and terrifying. But as yeah. it goes on, you kind of learn to love Neville's grandma, right? Yeah, I mean I guess it does show
10: that like a happy or unhappy home can take like different forms mm. because he literally imagines her hat on Snape right so yeah. that is is when you're a kid Maging and Freud. someone's that strict to you <laughs> it is like it is sad and abusive so you do feel sorry for Neville but again she has that redemption where she's like I think it's at the battle of Hogwarts she's but,
11: but I think constantly. there is also a, a, an aspect where he had to get away from his grandmother to like become his fullest self but then also his fullest self was being like his dad yeah and Mom. that's
3: true and I wonder how much these like resistance then becomes your family because Dumbledore's army is kind of a family the order of the phoenix is basically a family and they're all they're not really bonded by anything other than their desire to like get rid of Voldemort <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I guess maybe in like dark times I just feel like precedent. Neville's
10: is even so much more personal than Harry, though, because with Harry it's like, oh, I look at a picture of my dad and I'm sad, and I saw him in a mirror one time. With Neville, <laughs> with Neville like, his mum literally gives him like a bubblegum wrapper and he yeah. keeps it forever. They are just, they... He is really out for revenge, I feel, and really can yeah. get the most out of Sam in Voldemort's snake.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> it's just one of the best moments in the series, isn't it? It is not it yeah. <laughs> okay, well, maybe on that note of just Neville, love. We'll come to a conclusion here.
2: I'm joined by Stephen and Anoush, and we're going to talk about how romance functions in the series. And the first thing I want to start with is this question of how everyone in Harry Potter seems to find their partner, their life partner in many cases, while at school.
8: The the interesting thing about the Harry Potter universe is never sort of properly nailed down in the books, and because I'm going to ignore Fantastic Beasts for the purposes of of this conversation, I'm not actually clear how many breeding partners there are in um, (laughs) the in the in the wizarding world, right? Yeah, we never see what the procedures are for divorce of the married couples. We see it's not clear to me that I mean Mrs. Weasley. And I'm aware that I've already bought on about this issue at length. But can she really escape that marriage? She doesn't seem to have any capital. Yeah. The the Malfoys presumably like are both loaded, but you know they're probably married for you know Tory slash Slytherin reasons. <laughs> um,
0: for the tax break.
8: Yeah, for the tax break. On the whole. Other than Luna, in the kind of expanded universe, everyone does meet someone at school.
2: And Neville, he doesn't. Although this is a point where my excessive reading of fan fiction after the Harry Potter series finished rather gets in the way because I can't really remember what's real and what's not. So I've read many stories where Neville and
8: Luna eventually find each other.
0: Well, that sort of seems like the obvious pairing, doesn't it? And that doesn't actually happen does
8: it? Particularly also weirdly in the film. Uh,
0: I feel like it's implied in the film.
2: Yeah. In, the,
8: in the films there's definitely a bit where like Neville's like I'm gonna go find Luna which obviously is before she came out and went paired up which I didn't like because it did feel like that kind of classic season finale of a sitcom where they're like oh god let's just pair the spares. Yeah. yeah yeah that's true.
2: Yeah. So because you know we start with Harry and our other characters when they're 11 I feel like there isn't really any romance content until would you say book four? Or maybe Ginny gives us a bit in books two and three when she's experiencing
0: her crush on Harry. The only crush that we see is her crush where she sort of just runs away from him, doesn't she? And she can't speak when she's in front of him, but there's, it's never explored. And I don't think we really know how Harry feels about that either.
8: Well, I think that's one of the reasons why I think Chamber of Secrets is, to my mind, the most underrated of, of the seven. Mm. Because I think it captures really well the utter misery of like starting at school and having a crush on someone who's a bit unattainable Mm. and being a bit lonely in your first year and not having many friends and that is why it works so well and it packs such an uh, emotional punch. I think it suffered when it came out from being the sequel but it it has aged incredibly well and so in an odd way that makes the then slightly arbitrary way that they get together feel slightly more emotionally satisfying than it actually is in of itself or actually kind of viewed from Chamber of Secrets. Them hooking up in Half Blood Prince feels more sort of emotionally resonant than it sh- than it actually deserves to.
2: Yes, because we know that she's been into him for a long time, whether Harry reciprocated or knew he reciprocated those feelings at the time or not. There is, it's not quite as random as like you there, my best friend's sister, wanna go out? <laughs> you know, it, yeah. It gives it a bit more of a background to that. But from the fourth book, given that we see most things from Harry's perspective, Harry starts to experience crushes, right? all his stuff with Cho and Cedric and how jealous he gets. And then I feel like a big turning point in the series is the Yule Ball during the Triwizard Tournament when, you know, there has to be partners for the dance. Yeah, I have
0: to say that that growing up, at like a similar age to Harry Potter. That was one of the most exciting scenes of all the <laughs> Harry Potter books for me. I, I you know, I didn't really mind about all of the other really scary stuff that was going on. I was like, oh my God, this ball is so stressful. Because you have Hermione, do you have Hermione and Victor Crumb at mm-hmm. this ball? Yeah. and um, And Harry longing for Cho, Cho with the sort of really attractive other man yeah it's just I mean it actually
8: is bigger boys and stolen sweethearts like it is I mean the thing about them that works particularly in their inspiration, is that they work brilliantly both as school stories even if you kind of ignore the magic so at the beginning they're obsessed with points and achieve and they yeah. they and then yeah by their sort of fourth year this ball and it's so emotionally fraught this is a large part of why I I was incredibly dubious about Emma Watson's race because the whole, like, she straightens her hair and suddenly everyone thinks she's attractive. is classic black girl behaviour. yeah, yeah. Relax your hair (laughs)
2: suddenly. Oh, what have you done? You look amazing.
8: Her hair's quite straight anyway. What is this? But anyway, and it's odd. So with Five and Harry and Cho, it's such a horrible relationship. At the time, I hated that. Came out in 2003 at the end of that first flowering, I think, of sort of fan fiction Mm. and fan community. And I think a lot of people in my fan community definitely felt that Harry's behavior was very much not how we had written Harry in relationships. Yeah. But what I like looking back is the the bravery of actually having him be like in many ways the stereotypical like appalling teenage boyfriend, like he has absolutely no idea what's going on with her emotionally. He can't seem to connect with her her grief at Cedric at all. He doesn't really seem to It's all about his kind of weird idealised version of herself.
0: But I think that's a great thing, because I think the more and more you see Harry as a flawed character through the books, the more sort of compelling he is. Because I thought he was quite a boring front man in the first couple of books I really preferred Ron and Hermione so it's quite good to make him more of an ambivalent character yeah
2: and there's their awful date Harry and Cho when they go to Madame Puddyfoots and she just cries and he can't understand why you know he sees her all the time like laughing with her friends and then the version of her that he gets is the one that just weeps all the time and he doesn't at all connect the fact that maybe that's because she feels close to you and you're the only person she can like be vulnerable with Stop being such a dick, Harry. Yeah, and
0: also he does that to his friends. He's always whining to them yeah, in, yeah. In, in the common room the entire time and then, like, doing amazing things and being being famous with everyone else. I know And that, they, they endure that. Mm. I know
8: that, like, by Order Phoenix, she was already mega famous, but I think you do appreciate through the rancing actually how brave it is in Order of the Phoenix to make your central character... So unlikable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, and it is kind of the classic, like, oh, my mentor figure is not behaving how I think he should. Mm. Why won't this girl open up to me in the way I feel she is? I'm really unpleasant to my friends. Whereas I think, actually, the one thing she gets wrong, and this is probably where I'm allowing the, the tale of, of, of my own fanfic to wag the dog of what actually happened, is Ron and Hermione not getting together in the fifth book. Yeah. Mm. I feel their relationship never quite works after book four. You kind of feel like they ought to have done something about it by that point do you know is it just me who who,
0: who... yeah maybe she thought that it would sort of keep people hooked but I was bored by that storyline by the time they actually did get together because you sort of like you say that there's sort of an obvious climax in, in the fifth book that doesn't actually happen. So then you get a bit it feels a bit stale by the, yeah. by the by the end.
8: By the end it's still like I'm not even sure if he likes He's it. like really really yeah, really are you not? Have you yeah. not you surely you've had this conversation. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
2: As mates you would yeah. have
8: had this conversation.
0: Yeah. But Harry's behavior is quite clever actually because doesn't it sort of echo what James is like even though we don't know what his dad's like when he's treating Cho badly.
8: Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's true. It is a really sort of interesting foreshadowing of it turning out and actually James is like a pretty bad guy. Yeah,
0: because he's another person who we sort of think is this saintly figure and then he's not when when you learn about his relationship and his story.
2: Yeah, because then, again, I'm struggling to remember what is pensive material (laughs) and what is fan fiction. But we see that moment right when the Marauders are teasing Snape and Lily... Like tells them to stop, and she says, like she says, like you disgust me or something like that, right? Doesn't she? Yeah. Um, and Harry then later asks about. He asked Snape about this, doesn't he? He said, like, but she hated him. How? How did this? How did they ever come together? And I, I mean, I really like Snape. I know that's controversial, but I think he gives Harry a really good voice because he's like, they were young, they grew up, you know, just yeah. like you, Will Potter.
8: <laughs> I think. I think the interesting thing about in terms of the romance and does everyone meet themselves at school is um you know the 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 slight weirdness is it's like well, why isn't there a wizarding h e what do they do on <laughs> do they do they really go all go into the world of work at age sixteen but actually <laughs> what she kind of does is she does sort of condense the coming of age arc into the kind of things you expect because obviously you know, the first book is like oh we've got achievements, stars house point the second one is like oh we're kind of still the small people in school but there's some like even younger people one of whom's a weird fan one of whom's got a weird crush on me mm-hmm. I don't really understand and I don't really know how to relate to these people third year is kind of the one where you're like oh I think things are going fine I've got it sussed bam you don't have it sussed because it turns out there are things about the adults you didn't understand the fourth book is kind of the one where we're like The weird sex not quite not Mm. not quite sex starts to happen which again is why as you say like ron and hermione's relationship really ought to have reached a climax there five and six is when people start to have seriously and then the seventh book you kind of have that going away to university coming back where he does quite literally go away and return in which you discover that your parents are imperfect he discovers Mm. dumbledore is imperfect um james is imperfect so in an odd way Actually, if you think about it as a kind of school-to-university arc, most people being paired off by the end doesn't feel as
0: weird. It is the classic narrative, isn't it? Like, you think that you're king of the school when you're in year nine and you're 14 but nothing actually yeah. exciting has happened to you but you're just older than the year sevens yeah. maybe a bit taller although not in my case <laughs> and then and then you move into like the GCSE time and it's like heartache and confusion and everyone's mm. letting you down yeah. So, yeah. yeah I remember that
2: so vividly actually at school looking at the people in like year 12 and 13 when I was maybe in year nine and being like They're like actual
0: adults. Yeah.
2: And I'm one of them. They're grown up. I will feel like a grown up. (laughs) And then like four years later being like,
0: When's that feeling going to arrive? Yeah, like feeling much more insecure than you did then. Why do I feel
2: the same, if not worse, <laughs> yeah, even I'm, though I'm taller?
8: <laughs> yeah, I think, and that's the thing, I because for for uh, Anna's Harry Potter Week, I published some of my fan fiction on the thing, and I went back through all of it to find something which was, like, not the early stuff, when you're basically just laughing at a 10-year-old's bad writing, and not the sort of late stuff, which is just so earnest, and it's funny, but it's also quite painful to get to the end of. But the the really interesting thing is that in the kind of long summer, in you know, 2002 bit, I really did think that by the time they were 50, 15, 16, that everyone would be confident and would mm. be like talking normally to the opposite sex and then everyone would have figured out their own sort of problems and, and the, the really fascinating thing to me that reading the stuff I wrote when I was 15, 16 is that they're obviously not like that at all because obviously I was not like that at Mm -hmm. all. I do think that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of us the first time didn't like Order of the Phoenix, because it actually conflicted with our idea of what we thought fifth year would be like. Of course, it turned out to actually be quite accurate.
2: Yeah, that's true. You know, near death notwithstanding. (laughs) Emotionally, (laughs) yes, it is quite similar. (laughs)
3: So now we're going to close the podcast with an extra special gem. Stephen, for Harry Potter week, you published your old fan fiction that you wrote in 2003. 2003, yeah, Slightly
8: before The Phoenix. So I would have been 12 or 13,
3: I think. Great. This is the final chapter of a longer fan fiction, which involves opening rifts in time. And it all gets very dramatic, but I do think this final chapter is the absolute highlight. You have interspersed it with some of your own modern-day adult Stephen's thoughts, so we'll be getting those, and Anush and I are going to do the voices. Anoush is doing all the best voices, so thank you so much, Anish. No problem. Harry Potter and the Rift in Time, a Stephen Bush original fanfic.
8: Chapter 6 The
12: costs of the library are horrendous,
8: Dumbledore said gravely.
12: It will delay your education by a term, and you will all have to stay for an extra few weeks over the summer to make up the time. <laughs>
8: Dumbledore winked at Harry. Dumbledore knew that a few more weeks at Hogwarts and away from the Dursleys would be no punishment at all. But more was to come. Dumbledore had summoned Harry, Hermione, Ron, Ella, Snape, and Professor McGonagall to his office to account for what had gone on.
12: While curiosity is admirable and experimentation is to be encouraged at a school...
8: Dumbledore... (laughs) Dumbledore said...
12: Doing what you did outside the bounds of the classroom was incredibly dangerous. It's normal circumstances, I'd have no choice but to expel all four of you.
8: Hermione let out a gasp.
12: <gasps> but with Voldemort on the prowl, that isn't an option,
8: Dumbledore said gently.
12: Instead, <laughs> <laughs> gently. <laughs> Instead, it's going to be 300 points off each of your houses and no trips to Hogsmeade either. Of course, that means that the House Cup will be gifted to Slytherin this year as there is no way that any of your houses will be able to make up that gap.
8: Snape grinned like a Cheshire cat. Ron, Harry, Ella and Hermione looked glum. I have a lot of questions at this point for past Stephen. (laughs) The four of them unleashed an abomination from beyond time, and their punishment is not they won't win the house cup (laughs) or go on a jolly. They're fifteen. They don't care about the house cup. Really not sure why I wrote Dumbledore as quite this irresponsible.
6: What about Hufflepuffs,
12: sir? Asked Ella. Well, Miss Rubens, as you know, Mr Weasley is a Hufflepuff, so they will have no chance of overhauling Slytherin either.
8: I'm not saying that the other characters were realised in astonishing detail, but I really don't know what is going on with my depiction of Dumbledore in this chapter.
12: I'm a Gryffindor, sir, said Ron. (laughs) Are you?
8: "'Gasped Dumbledore.
12: "'Well, the sorting hat's not foolproof, clearly.
8: "'2003 Stephen's version of Dumbledore. "'History's greatest monster.' (laughs)
12: "'Professor!'
8: (laughs) "'Protested Hermione angrily.
3: "'Ron is the most Gryffindor person I know. "'He's brave and
12: kind and honourable and... "'And I love him!'
8: "'I know!' Dumbledore winked.
12: "'I just thought you should come out and say it "'and that the two of you should stop telling poor Harry that you were... Off to research potions, or whatever nonsense.
8: I'm not saying this fanfiction was going to win any awards, but this late Dumbledore turns into the world's least professional man development has floored me. I think I intended for Dumbledore's winking to reveal he was really on their side, but instead he comes across as unprofessional and sleazy. Anyway... Dumbledore continued.
12: Unless anyone has a persuasive case that'll be 300 points from Ravenclaw and 900 points from Gryffindor. <laughs> Actually, Headmaster,
8: Snape interjected, the
12: fault was mine. I had a conversation with Miss Granger about theoretical magic after her Wodomancy class, and I fear she took it as an instruction. I take full responsibility.
8: (laughs) Wumpf! Harumphed Dumbledore. (laughs) My theory is that as I got to the end, I started phoning it in, explaining why the quality, never particularly high, really drops off in this chapter. Well... Dumbledore said.
12: Severus, we'll talk about this between ourselves. You four may go.
8: Outside Dumbledore's study, the four teenagers looked at each other awkwardly.
12: How long have the two of you been?
8: Harry asked. Ron and Hermione blushed.
3: Well, we spent a lot of time together this summer,
8: Hermione said.
3: And well, we were talking about last year and we realised how much we, uh,
0: meant to each other. We didn't tell you because we didn't want you to think that while you were holed up with the Dursleys, we were having fun without you,
8: Ron said.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's okay, (laughs) said Harry. I'm glad. The two of you were driving me mad last year. I'm glad you worked it out. (laughs) And seeing as we can all still go to Hogsmeade, we could do a double date,
8: said Ella. A
3: double date?
8: Gasped Harry. You mean... Ella grinned and held out an arm.
3: Walk me back to Ravenclaw's dorms?
8: <gasps> Ella and Harry walked off, arm in arm.
0: eh? Yes, Ron? You know I, er, uh, love you too, right? Yes, Ron. Meet
3: you at mine? I want to talk to Snape.
12: You aren't half weird.
8: <laughs> Ron walked off, and Snape walked out.
12: Miss Granger.
8: The tall and forbidding potions master said.
12: Professor Snape?
8: Gasped Hermione. Quite why she's gasping, seeing as she waited behind precisely for him to come out of this room, it's not entirely clear to me.
12: I suppose you're wondering why I lied to you and blew Slytherin's easiest chance at the house cup in our history.
8: Snape said.
12: Yes, sir.
8: Said Hermione.
12: You confirm to me that while you can let your curiosity get the better of you, you are one of the cleverest witches of
8: your age, said Snape.
12: While I want you to be more careful in future, I don't want that curiosity crushed.
8: Worst teachers ever. (laughs) I mean, why did I think they cared at all? Let alone this much about the house cup. They're actual adults.
3: Thank you, sir.
8: No need.
12: And Miss Granger?
4: Yes, Professor?
12: I do hope that you won't disappoint me.
8: <laughs> Clearly, I intended this to set up a sequel because I ended it with the end question mark. But thankfully, it was the end.
3: Hey. Dumbledore said.
8: I know. I know. I, I don't. My, my problem is not. And I don't know what my cue is. I just need to collect myself. <laughs> <for> a... <laughs>
0: be a nightmare to edit <laughs>
3: no it's gonna be great <laughs> leave it all in thanks for listening to this episode of seriously the pop
2: culture podcast from the new Statesman. if you enjoyed the show why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode we're available in all the usual places you get podcasts including apple podcasts where you could also leave us a review we've got loads of events coming up this summer including festivals live
3: episodes and quizzes find out more and buy tickets at seriouslypod.com
2: events we're available many other places on the internet including on twitter facebook and tumblr we're seriously pod on all of them
3: we love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or just hearing your thoughts on what we've discussed get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod
6: at gmail.com
2: and if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast
0: My favourite character is Trevor the Toad, Neville's pet, because I think all of the other animals in Harry Potter are a bit showy or a bit scary. And actually, Trevor is just really straightforward and something that you can relate to right at the beginning of the book. And also, Hermione, I think, is helping him find the Toad right at the beginning in the first book. And if she hadn't been doing that, perhaps she never would have bumped into Harry and Ron in their compartment and they wouldn't have been friends.
8: I think my favourite underrated minor Harry Potter character has to be Professor Flitwick, one of the worryingly small number of teachers at Hogwarts who neither endangers his students, doesn't appear to teach a particularly useful curriculum, or isn't a boring teacher holding on to a job quite literally past the point of death. I mean, there are some serious labour market issues with the continuing employment of Professor Bint. just seems to be a solid teacher who doesn't exhibit favouritism, malice, or any of the worrying traits than so much of the teaching staff at Hogwarts does.
10: My favourite underrated character is Frank Bryce, the Riddle's gardener. I just feel like he had a really hard time of it in life, and he also had a really terrible time of it in death. Like, he makes up a fake wife in the moments when Voldemort's like, who's there? And he's like, my wife will know I'm missing, and I'm like, no, she won't, because she's not there. And I just feel so sad for him. I think he's like the first instance where you kind of see that this wizarding world isn't just, and it isn't fair, and terrible things happen to people that don't deserve it. And also, I'd like to say, I do not approve of the fact that he was replaced by a milkman in Lego Harry Potter Years 1-4, to four, the video game, so I should be writing strict words about that.
11: A very obscure character, a guy called Uncle Billius, who is from the, either the Weasley family or from Molly's side of the family, uh, we don't know, but he's he's only mentioned in a few sentences. He's actually the same guy who is mentioned in the third book as having seen the Grim and then died afterwards. And he's my favorite character or favorite obscure character because I feel like there's, I've created this massive backstory of a very, very dark life for a very funny character. Who's uh, mentioned as being an uncle who gets drunk at weddings and pulls flowers out of his ass? But then, I've, I thought that he might be a character who's maybe affected by depression and then turned to alcohol and and hence his death by seeing the groom. It is friends
9: or uh, friends a. <laughs> so friends is a centaur, so half human, half horse, and also a professor of divination, and he also saves Harry from Voldemort. So there's a lot to like, but. Um, Why he's my favourite underrated character is his plotline, which sees his fellow herd of centaurs reject him for being too involved in the human world. And they see the fact that, for instance, he lets Harry ride on his back as as really dishonourable. So it's incredibly sad, but it also feels very complicated and for that reason, perhaps true in some way. And it it feels like it helps you see a situation from both sides and also as friends does from in the middle Mm. and it particularly made me think of my cat how does how does my cat feel
4: about being owned by me? I do
9: not know. Sometimes she gives me quite a look.
4: <laughs> <laughs> my favourite minor character is Hedwig because she's a badass owl and because she's actually essential to the plot during, like, most of... At least the first years, whenever he... Well, first, whenever he sends a letter, but then whenever he wants to write to Sirius is the only way he has. And she's very smart. Like, she's she would find Sirius when he's hiding, so, you know... Not that easy and also i feel like harry was kind of a dick to her sometimes like she he forgets her in the second book when he's uh, flying privet drive and he has to go back to get her cage which is so unfair considering that she's his only friend in Private drive and until he meets ron and then hermione she's basically the only friend he has in hogwarts when hagrid's not around and anyway All the scenes when she's in it are just the sweetest to me because that's when he writes the letters and then he goes to find her, to give it to her. And yeah, the sweet moments in the middle of all these adventures.
1: Hold up!